0: Now that we can listen to the opera on the radio, why would anybody still go to the theater?
1: This is densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeff Lynn. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia.
2: I'm Greg Schill. I'm a professor of law at the University of Iowa College of Law. Hi, Greg. Good to see you.
1: On today's show, we're going to be talking about work from home and the outlook for real estate and cities. Our guest is Stein van Nieuwerberg, Earl Casas, and Benjamin Shore, professor of real estate and professor of finance at Columbia Business School. He's written a paper recently called Work from Home and the Office Real Estate Apocalypse with Arpit Gupta and Renda Mittal, Stein. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Greg.
1: Let's talk about the first part of the title of your paper: Work from Home. What evidence do we have on the persistence of work from home, and what evidence do we have on the sort of outlook for work from home?
0: It's a great question. It's maybe the hardest question of all that you're going to ask me. What we know is that. Looking back in time, about 5% of work was done from home before the pandemic, right? Work from home is not a new phenomenon. It's always been there. Many of us academics have always spent a day or so working from home for many years. And what happened in the pandemic is, of course, this massive shift, this massive uptake, oftentimes out of necessity. We saw that work from home skyrocketed according to some measures, maybe 60% of paid days were worked from home in March and April and May of 2020. And then that fraction stayed really high for many, many months, and it has now been roughly constant. According to Nick Bloom's survey, at around 30% of days that are worked remotely. And it has been around that 30% level for the better part of a year and a half now. The second source of data that a lot of people will point to is the CASEL data. So for those of you who are not familiar, CASEL is a security firm and doesn't really collect economic data. It just so happens to have a lot of data from turnstile data in offices. And it basically tracks physical occupancy of office buildings. And Whereas 100 was the level of physical occupancy before the pandemic, that number fell all the way to 10% of pre-pandemic office occupancy when COVID first began and then gradually crept back up to a level of around 50% of pre-pandemic office occupancy. That's an average for the 10 largest metropolitan areas. It's actually quite similar in New York City, for example. It's around that 50% mark now. And there's a little sign of improvement. And again, we've been close to that 50% mark for quite a while now. Again, the better part of a year. And so while there's anecdotal evidence that some bosses want their employees to come back to the office, there's actually fairly little hard evidence that that has happened and that that is likely to happen in the foreseeable future. Now, of course, we don't know what's going to happen. We think this is an important source of risk, this return to the office or not that we need to think about when we think about valuing offices.
1: yeah, I think that's a nice summary. So we have a bunch of current data on you know how many people are in the office today, and we have anecdotes about what people would like to see in the future. One thing that I like about your paper very much is the method of trying to infer something about the persistence of work from home from market prices and from valuation. So we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. So in the motivation for your paper, you cite at least two reasons to care about the persistence of work from home and its effects on office real estate valuations. So the first one is that the decline in Valuations could have consequences for institutional investors and financial stability. The second reason you cite is that as an asset class, the interesting thing about office buildings is that they tend to be spatially concentrated, especially downtown. And so the decline in their value could have problems for local public finance and local quality of life. Those are two good reasons to start thinking about this question. On the first front, you know, on this on these concerns about consequences for institutional investors and for financial stability. How would you kind of go about assessing the degree of that risk and who is impacted?
0: Right. So let's sort of make a distinction between the value of of equity investments and the value of debt investments, right? So as we know, a lot of real estate is funded with a lot of debt because real estate is good collateral. It's pledgeable, And so in practice, typical loan to value ratios against typical office building or retail building could be on the order of 60-70%, right? So let's say 60% is debt, 40% is equity. What that means is that if the value of an asset falls by 40%, because the equity is is junior, the equity will be completely wiped out. If the loss is exactly 60%, the debt will bear exactly zero losses. If the loss is greater than 40%, let's say it's 50%, now the debt will start to take losses as well. Right? So When we think about the impact of price declines in commercial real estate, it really becomes important to figure out exactly how large are these declines because that has bearings on who gets to suffer these losses. So a lot of institutional investors have equity positions in commercial real estate assets. They have those either directly because they're investing directly in property that would typically be the case for larger investors think about the canadian pension funds think about sovereign wealth funds oftentimes they would invest through joint ventures for example the norwegian sovereign wealth fund may own 49.9 percent of a large office building in new york city and uh, sort of the same for these pension funds Uh, sometimes they will invest through commingled private equity funds and uh, those funds will then invest in a in a diversified portfolio of real estate assets Right, So if we want to get a sense of what the declines on that equity is, the fundamental challenge our paper tries to tackle is that we don't really know what has happened to the value of these assets. And the reason we don't know is because there has been very, very little trade in those markets since COVID struck, right? And the best way to think about this is there's massive uncertainty about what the true value of these assets is. And so if you're an existing owner, in particular, an existing equity owner in one of these assets, you do not want to recognize the fact that your position, your equity position, may be fully wiped out on a mark-to-market basis, right? On a true market value basis, this, this office that used to be worth 100 is now worth 60, and your 40 in equity is fully wiped out. You have no incentive to recognize that loss. Instead, you're much better off pretending that maybe the loss is 20% and you know, you're know you still in the saddle, And so as a result of that, at the same time, because of this uncertainty, the potential buyer of your office thinks this asset is worth a lot less than you do and would only be willing to buy it from you at a much lower price, right? Maybe at $50 or $60. And so there's no trade because the bid-ask spread is just too wide.
2: There's a background fact that you bring out in the paper that might be helpful here for context. I wonder if you might talk about contractual occupancy. So a moment ago, you were talking about, I think, physical occupancy rates, um, which have seemed to have plateaued around 50%. And I think that implies that businesses maybe are rethinking their office space commitments, but of course they can't turn on a dime. So can you maybe talk a little bit about? contractual occupancy trends and the role they play in the stickiness that you're talking about in terms of valuation and difficulty of, of identifying valuations.
0: Right. So I think, like you said, there is basically a lot of uh, leasing in the commercial real estate context is, is very long-term in nature, right? So the typical office lease in the United States is maybe, says maybe a seven-year maturity in New York City is eight years, which means that a lot of leasing decisions get taken very infrequently, right? And one corollary of that is that if we look at the fraction of leases that have come up for renewal that were outstanding on the eve of the pandemic, and that came up for renewal in 2020, 2021, or 2022, in those three years, only about 36% of leases have actually come up for renewal, which means that a lot of tenants have not had to make space decisions yet. You know, two thirds of tenants have not made space decisions on on those leases yet the one third that have you know have taken a range of actions all the way from just emptying the space and not renewing at all to renewing but for some of the space maybe at a lower rent to potentially renewing all of the space but probably also at a lower rent because there's so much vacancy and they are they're in such a strong bargaining position right so what we've seen is basically a lot of lease rollovers that have happened and and then have not been fully replaced with new absorption, with new office absorption. And as a result, the contractual occupancy rate has been falling, right? Because there's all these leases rolling off, sort of think of it as one seventh every year on average, and there's very little new leasing activity taking place, right? By our calculations, the new leasing activity... In at the end of 2022, it was something like 70% below the normal leasing activity from before the pandemic. So a massive drop off in lease signing. Meanwhile, leases are constantly rolling off and not being renewed. That can only mean one thing, which is that contractual vacancy is rising. And you know, whereas the office market has always been a very cyclical market with vacancies going up and down, The vacancy rate right now in office in the United States is at an all-time high. In New York City, for example, it's at around 24 25%. It was at 12% before the pandemic. We have seen large vacancies in the past, but never of this level. We are at an all-time low occupancy and an all-time high vacancy. In other places, like in San Francisco... The office market was going very strong up until the onset of the pandemic, with only 5% vacancy. That vacancy rate has skyrocketed to 30% in just a matter of a few years. Again, I don't think San Francisco has ever seen a 30% vacancy rate before, right? And so that means there's a lot of empty office There's that, of course, affects directly the cash flows of the office owners. It also puts pressure on the market rents for the existing tenants that do renew. And all of that sort of means even further losses to cash flow. So our research that's based on leasing cash flow data from a data provider called CompStack shows that already by the end of 2022, active leasing revenue is already down 18.5% nationwide. But the second shoe is yet to drop because there's two-thirds of leases that haven't even come up for renewal yet. And so this will be a very gradual and much deeper cash flow problem than, than just those 18.5% that we have already seen.
1: Just a signpost for our listeners. The basic problem is that it's hard to observe commercial real estate office valuations because of a small number of transactions. And so the basic methodology in the paper is to use the cash flows from the leasing data to try to estimate what's happened to valuations. You cited, you know, some statistics from New York, from San Francisco. There's kind of interesting variation across cities in the return to office, in both the return to office and the sort of how leasing terms have been affected. And so, you know, San Francisco, as you cited, has been hit really hard, New York as well. But there's some, there's some cities where that seems to be less of a problem. Do you have an explanation for what might be going on? Is there something different about, say, Austin or what's different about Austin compared with San Francisco, New York?
0: Yeah, so I agree with you that there's definitely variation across the space, and then some cities are doing better than others. I would say, though, that there is sort of a big aggregate effect here that is affecting all cities, right? We we look at that in the paper carefully. There's about 105 office markets in our data set. The largest 20 markets, we sort of study in a little bit more detail than the smaller markets. But by and large, the declines in active leasing revenue are there almost everywhere, right? And they're around this, the 16, 17, 18% number that I was just mentioning. So for example, the largest 20 markets have about a 17% drop in revenue. The other 85 smaller markets also 17% drop in revenue. It's true that in Austin, that drop is only 10%. In Los Angeles, it's 24%. So yes, there is variation, but it's sort of by and large negative, and it's not as different across space as you might imagine it is. So I think a good mental model is that this is an aggregate shock with some sort of minor variation across space. Yes, there are places and there are very few of them that are actually doing well or office is actually doing well. Miami is is sort of the quintessential example. There's actually new office construction taking place in Miami. That said, Miami is not a large office market. It's going from a very small office market to a slightly less small office market. Miami does not have the human capital to support a large office employment base. And so these are sort of sporadic examples that are not really moving the aggregate needle you know, the other thing that's happening in places like Austin is that there is out migration from California, sort of both business and, and individual out migration. Some of it is related to taxes. Some of it is related to some of the issues with crime and so forth in places like San Francisco. Some of it was predating the pandemic for sure, where some businesses were already relocating there. And again, even Austin is suffering cash flow losses in, in the office sector.
1: I take your point that the aggregate effects are big and big relative to the cross-sectional dispersion. That said, I think landlords in New York would definitely prefer to be landlords in Austin, right? And given the motivations of your paper, it seems like there is a qualitative difference between the two. And it makes me wonder, what are the sources of that dispersion? Is there a role for policy or for some choices that could be made to move the needle at all?
0: Yeah, so one big difference that we've noticed, and we're recently analyzing some of these cross-city differences, and they're there. They are correlated with working from home exposures in the cross-section. A lot of that has to do with, for example, the role of big tech, right? So places like San Francisco and Seattle had very high exposure to technology firms in the office sector. Technology firms in general are have been more eager to embrace remote work. And that's indeed exactly where we see the largest shock, right? So San Francisco, as I mentioned, had a massive rise in vacancy and Seattle similarly is doing very, very poorly because Amazon and Microsoft have all been putting substantial blocks of office space on the sublease market, as well as sort of not renewing leases in some of their buildings. So clearly, I think technology, tenant, basically tenant industry and heterogeneity in tenant industry is an important driver. Technology being at the forefront of the remote work a movement. Places like New York actually have the blessing of being a very well-diversified economy and actually being potentially a little bit more resilient. New York City is definitely not an outlier. It's somewhere in the middle of the pack in terms of how negatively it is affected by remote work. And that's because it has a well-diversified tenant base.
2: What about suburban office markets. So when we think back to previous dispersals, there were winners in those cases, even as central cities in the Northeast, for example, saw rising vacancy. Is there any aspect of that that is repeating itself suburban office parks or anything like that? Or is it really just reallocation to work from home?
0: I do think that there is a movement to follow the people, right? So one of the things we've learned from the pandemic is that there were substantial migration waves out of the core of the cities towards the suburbs. We see this very clearly in residential housing prices and residential rents. I have a separate paper on this. And it's not unlikely that businesses will follow where the people went. That would mean that suburban retail, suburban office potentially, as you said, could see a bit of a revival. Now, I do think a lot of the suburban office product that we have in the United States is, is very out of date. A lot of it was constructed in the 80s and the 90s. It's not clear that it's fit for purpose, but I do think that there might be a role for more distributed workplaces where large companies, for example, if they have a cluster of employees in the suburbs, could set up a satellite office. Uh, Maybe that's a new building. Maybe that's a repurposed existing suburban office building. But I can see the business rationale for that. This hasn't really shown up in our data yet. Also, the data on suburban offices just by its nature, a lot more sparse. So it would be harder to detect, but I do expect this to materialize in the future. And the same for retail. When people are working from home, they need to get out of the house from time to time. So they go to the mall over lunch, things like that. Or some people have small children at home and maybe they go to a satellite office. You could imagine, let's say a large technology firm that's based in San Francisco could have a satellite office in Oakland. They could have a satellite office in Marin County. It could have. Sort of a more distributed network of offices, but you know this—this this is speculation at this point.
1: Part of the flight to the Sun Belt might be interpreted as like a flight to amenities, right? As, as yes. you just said with the example of Miami. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, a lot of the
0: Miami office activity is of that nature. Is not so much that companies are moving their headquarters to Miami. It's often that maybe the some folks in the C suite want to have a small office in Miami because they're spending more time there.
1: I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about what I think is a very cool part of the paper, which is taking the leasing data and developing a valuation model where one of the outputs is kind of this estimate of how persistent this remote work situation is going to be. Can you talk a little bit about how that parameter is identified?
0: Sure. So the vision of the model is that just like any asset price, The price is the present discounted value of the cash loss, right? So here we're talking about an office. The office is going to generate some cash loss, rent, from renting out the space to tenants, minus operating expenses, and then going to discount these future cash flows back to today. And that discount rate is going to recognize the aggregate sources of risk that underlie the cash flow fluctuations. And in our model, there's essentially two sources of aggregate risk. One is business cycle fluctuations. You know, I mentioned earlier that the commercial real estate market has always been a very cyclical market. And so that business cycle risk is a very traditional source of risk. We're going to layer on top a new source of risk, which we're going to call working from home risk. And the idea of working from home risk is that we're going to conceptualize this as there being sort of two states of the world. One is the state of the world where most of us are in the office most of the time. And another state is one where a substantial fraction of people are spending a substantial part of their work week working from home. Right? We Think of that as the working from home and the no working from home state, even though they're sort of both intermediate cases. And so what we need to figure out is just how likely is it that once the economy transitions to this hybrid work environment where there's a lot of people working from home, at least some of the time, how likely is it that we're going to stay in that state of the world, right? What is the persistence of that state? And this is going to matter because you know that's a bad state of the world from the perspective of the owner of the office, because in that state of the world, people are not renewing their leases nearly as much. It's harder to rent a vacant space. The rent growth is going to be low. But on the other hand, there's going to be less new development as well, right? That will be the saving grace. There will be maybe some conversion of office to apartment. There will be less new supply of office. So that's sort of a silver lining. But by and large, this is a bad state of the world where cash flows are low. And so the more likely this state is to persist, the larger the reduction in value will be intuitively. And so what we're going to do is we're going to say, well, there's actually a small part of the office market for which we observed the value reduction, which is the REIT market. Right For those listeners who are not familiar with the REIT market, the REIT market is the public market for real estate buildings. And in particular, since we're going to be calibrating our model to New York City, there's three different REIT stocks, Vornado, SL Green, and Empire Realty State Trust, for whom we observe the value of their office portfolio, which is a New York-centric office portfolio, minute by minute, second by second on the New York Stock Exchange. Right, And so we can actually see what has happened to the equity value of those buildings in real time. So we're going to use the model to back out how likely that remote work state's persistence is in order to match the observed decline in the REIT stock prices in New York City. Okay, That's sort of the spirit of the exercise. And again, the the intuition being that the more the stock drops, the more likely that remote work state is because that's the bad state of the world and we need the model to account for this very large drop in the REIT returns. There's only one wrinkle, which is that REITs are not owning a representative portfolio of properties. In fact, they're owning the best properties. And so our model is going to make a distinction between the best quality office, which we're going to call A plus, and then basically the entire office market. And so when we're matching these REIT prices, we're going to be matching the A plus segment of the market. Okay, And then we're going to make the assumption that You know that remote work probability has sort of really nothing to do with whether the office is a plus or not. So we can equally apply it to all
1: the other offices. So values have already dropped. Many of us are already working from home at least part of the time. Can I ask you to characterize the remaining risk from here on out? Is it mostly upside risk that we'll all of a sudden go back to the office all the time, or is there still some remaining downside risk that remote work trends will accelerate?
0: Well, the way to think about it is that right now, we're, as you said, we're sort of in this substantial adoption of remote work state of the world. But there's uncertainty about that state of the world going forward. We could stay in it another period, which would actually be a negative cash flow shock, right? Think of it as a bunch of leases have not come up for renewal yet. If we stay remote for another year, a bunch of these leases will not get renewed. A bunch of that vacant space will not happen. Rent growth will be weak for another year. So that's actually a negative shock. Or there is sort of substantial upside, which is, yes, we may go back to the office, in which case cash flows will partially rebound and so forth. There's good news. So when the headline result in the paper is about a 40% drop in the value of commercial real estate, that drop is sort of both the initial drop. The initial drop is a little bit larger. It's around 45% because part of the initial shock was also a recession. That recession then sort of disappeared in the next year in 2021 and became an expansion, but still we're in a working from home expansion. And then if we simulate the model forward for another 10 years until 2029, the average scenario across expansions, recessions, working from home, non-working from home is about a 40% drop in value. If we condition on the economy staying in that remote work state of the world all along the path for eight more years, then the drop is actually 60% in value. OK, so there is still a lot of downside risk from this point forward. However, you know, again, there's lots of scenarios where we go back to the office and the drop is much smaller than 40 percent. So there's a whole range of outcomes. So sort of the median outcome is negative 40 percent. And a tail outcome is we stay in this remote work world for a lot longer. And we can debate sort of how likely it is. According to our model, it's about a 25 to 50 percent chance that by 2029, we're still in that remote work world.
2: I wonder if we might spin out these implications for different players and entities. And you do this a bit in the paper, but I think our listeners would benefit from that. So this is an urban economics podcast. Let's let's maybe start with cities. What is the relationship between property taxes, but also other sources of revenue generated by office workers and municipal budgets?
0: Very good. So property tax is a very important component of tax revenue for most municipal governments. In New York City, for example, about half of the city budget of the tax revenues collected are property taxes. And of the property taxes, a good chunk of course is residential property tax, but a good chunk of that that is about 18% is urban office and urban retail. Now I should mention, All the cash flow effects that we find for urban office are just as strong for urban retail. And so this conversation is really not just an office conversation. It's an urban office and urban retail conversation. And I'll come back to that in a second. But just thinking about the property taxes in New York City, if you apply my 40% loss number to the budget, it essentially makes a five percentage point hole in the budget right? So if New York City's annual budget is $100 billion, I'm talking about $5 billion in lost revenue. So that's a non-trivial shock. And because of budget balance rules, the city would have to find that $5 billion elsewhere. It could either cut spending by $5 billion, which means less money for police departments, less money for transportation, less money for education, more crime, more grime. Or it could raise taxes somewhere else. It could either raise Other property taxes, like residential property taxes, or it could raise sales taxes, business taxes, personal income tax in New York City. All of that would make New York City either a less attractive place to live or to do business. And so the risk is that either higher taxes or lower amenities, lower government spending on amenities, would lead to more out-migration. And there's reason to be concerned, because in the past, we might have said, you know what? It's a fact of life, death and taxes. We're stuck in New York City. The government raises taxes on us. We're going to have to suck it up and pay. Now, we live in a different world where we can just pack up and go. And in fact, we might even keep our job in New York and do it remotely, we just not pay taxes in New York anymore. And so a sophisticated way of saying this is that the elasticity of out-migration to taxes And amenity spending might be much larger now than it used to be, right? And if that's true, then a good chunk of people leave after property values fall. Well, guess what? There's now less demand for office, less demand for residential. Property values will fall even more. Tax revenue will fall even more. We'll have to cut more taxes. And so we can get into this urban doom loop where we have sort of accelerated out migration, accelerated property value declines and tax revenue declines. Now, at some point, the economy will probably find a bottom where there's sort of so much vacancy and rents are so low that on the margin, new tenants might be willing to rent at those lower rents, but it's not clear that we want to go through that. This is sort of the experience of New York City in the 70s. This is sort of the experience of Detroit more recently, and it could take a long time. It took New York City decades to recover from that in the 80s and 90s. And ironically, it was the office sector that built out New York City in that period that was sort of the the solution to the decline in manufacturing back then. Now the office is the problem, and we will need to repurpose some of that real estate. We have a fundamentally a misallocation of real estate for the wrong use, and it's going to take a long time to change that.
1: What margins should or even can the local policymakers act on to try to interrupt the urban doom loop? So if you think
0: narrowly, usually the property tax rate is the thing that gives, meaning that's sort of the key instrument that local governments control, right? And so you could imagine that they increase taxes in order to close the hole in the budget. But as we pointed out, that potentially would only accelerate this downward spiral. So this is not an attractive option. I think there's a case to be made for investments. What I mean by that is imagine that the diagnosis was right and we have a fundamental misallocation of space or office use, and it needs to be converted in alternative use. That alternative use, by the way, could be life science. It could be last mile warehouses. It could be, I've even heard about urban farms. (laughs) I'm not sure this is a good idea for New York City. And it certainly includes apartments, right? We have a housing crisis. We have too little housing. We have too little affordable housing. So clearly, the conversation of office to apartment conversion is often the first thing that comes to mind. You could imagine that the government could subsidize this through property tax abatements, potentially through cheaper sources of debt, municipal bond financing, for example. And so we could talk more about that if you're interested. But there's a lot of that to me is sort of a promising lever.
1: Yeah. I mean, one, one interesting distinction from, say, the 1970s when New York was declining is that this work from home shock. Is happening in the wake of many decades of increasing residential demand for urban living, for central city living. And so it seems like the playing field is a little bit different. The shock may be bigger, but there may be margins like along amenity, the amenity margin that could also could also help cities. Yeah, I
0: think that's a good point, Jeff. I think the, the city of the future is a city, is a consumption city, sort of maybe more than a production city, right? What remote work does, it's really quite a radical idea. It's essentially the separation of location of work from location of residence. And if you think about it, for all of human history, those two concepts have been very closely connected. We used to forage in the forests right where we lived and then farm the land where we lived and then go to factories close to where we lived. And now we have this freedom of basically choosing two places, a place where we work and a place where we live, and they don't have to have much to do with each other. And that's a radical idea. And I think it's going to take decades for that idea to fully develop. And cities will have to make radical adjustments to deal with that. And one adjustment is that cities could become great places to live and really get focused on that and attracting residents as opposed to attracting jobs. And places like New York City, I think, are in good shape because they have all this existing amenity base, thick amenity packet, a thick marriage market, things like that. Sort of, they're exciting places for young people to be together. And I think they will need to focus on that even more in the future.
2: On the conversion side, there are some regulatory hurdles, and some of those are not just in the nature of zoning and so forth. I've talked to home builders who say it takes months for them to get approval for just little things, uh, updating the plumbing, things like that, just because city permitting departments are overworked. What about on the financing side? So if a building is, as you say, sixty forty debt equity and the owner is interested in converting it, Would the owner typically sell it to a different type of a landlord who would then, or a developer who would do the conversion? What happens to the equity holders as you kind of imply that, you know, maybe they get wiped out. I don't know, but you know, what does that look like? And then what happens to the debt holders? Okay.
0: So this is a great question. Let me give you a, a concrete example. This is based on some work that I'm currently in the middle of for uh, Brookings Institution. I'm writing a practical policy paper about exactly this office to apartment conversion. So imagine we had a healthy class B office building before the pandemic at 250,000 square feet, 400 bucks a foot, hundred million dollar building. Now three big shocks, two big and one small shock happened. The first big shock is remote work, what we've been talking about. That puts severe pressure on the cash flows of that class B office building. The second big shock is interest rates. Interest rates have gone up materially from about 2% to you know around 4%, maybe 3.5% for the long-term bond yield to 10-year yield and are expected to go up in the future. That alone, just the interest rates without any cash flow trouble, reduce the value of that class B office building by somewhere between 30 and 35%. It's a massive shock. So now layer on the cash flow problems from working from home, we're down 55, 60%. Now layer on top of that, climate regulation. A lot of cities have committed to net zero and five large cities in the US, including New York, have rolled out a series of fines. And in New York City, somewhere between 27% of buildings in 2024, up to 72% of buildings in 2030 will be fined because they will not meet greenhouse gas emission regulation. So that lowers the value of this Class B office building, which, by the way, is a brown office building because it's old, um, by another 5%. So we're down 60%. This building that used to be worth $100 million is now worth $35 million. That likely means that the original equity owner is completely wiped out. No doubt this office had a mortgage on it. This mortgage is now in foreclosure. The owner has given the keys back to the bank. The bank does not want to own this vacant brown office building, and it's going to sell it in a foreclosure auction. And so imagine that the next person, you, Greg, could buy this office building for $35 million at its new market value, which is a deeply distressed transaction. Let's say the bank had $60 million mortgage and now needs to sell this for 35. So even the debt loses 40, 45%. So, we have a deeply distressed sale, but you, Greg, are the happy owner of a $35 million brown office building.
2: Can I pause you there just for a second? Yeah. I just want to work through the implications here. So, right. So, I put together this group of people and we come up with $35 million either in debt, these higher rates, or equity. What happened? But then, are there CDS payouts on this default or? you know, what are the kind of knock-on effects in the market when we think about this at scale?
0: Well, I think at the minimum, this could be, again, because this is an aggregate shock, this could have what we call um, fire sale externalities. If there's a lot of distress sales happening at the same time, that could depress the market price. This happened in the subprime mortgage crisis in 2009 and 10 and 11 uh, at a minimum. So that will put sort of further downward pressure. Potentially there are ramifications for financial stability. We can come back on those. It turns out a lot of regional banks have a lot of commercial real estate debt. You could just imagine that in some banks, this is a really big part of their portfolio. For some of them, maybe they have a lot of concentrated exposure to specific office assets that are really bad shape. So you could imagine isolated incidences where this could literally topple the bank. So I think those are sort of the most important ones. We see some of this in the CMBS market in the commercial mortgage-backed security market. You could imagine some people there might lose money, but I think those are the main ones. Okay, so now let's return to our example, right? So you have this $35 million building, the brown office building. You want to convert it into a green apartment building, luxury rentals. And let's imagine you're not going to tear this building down because this building is one of the few office buildings that's physically suitable for this conversion. Likely, those are older buildings with smaller floor plates. Likely, those are class B buildings. And so you're going to convert this. Because it's not a teardown, you're going to save a bunch of time. This will only take you two years, two and a half years, instead of maybe five, six years if it was ground up development. If we're lucky, the government is really helping you because This is this issue has risen to the top of the agenda of every local policymaker everywhere. And so they are really eager to to make these transactions work, these conversions work. And so they're streamlining a lot of the zoning, a lot of the permitting in the best case scenario. So this two and a half years later, you could start leasing up your new apartment building. It's going to take you another year and a half to fill it. So it's going to take you four years until you fill that apartment building. Now you have a luxury rental building and now you can fill it up, rent it out. And so the question is, do the numbers work? Okay, And so I've done the numbers for a generic office building. And the answer is they work. What I mean by that is you will make as a developer around the 15% internal rate of return, 15% annual return for this development without any subsidies. And so the question is, is that high enough a return given the risk of this investment? And if you look at my paper, I claim that just clears your hurdle rate. So you're making just enough return to justify the risk that you're taking. Because this is risky activity, it's development. You're doing this conversion, so you know 15% is a fair return for an investment like this. Okay, so this could go ahead, but remember, we assumed you bought this asset at 35 million dollars. Okay, so we're assuming this distress has taken place already, and then it turns out it's you know the numbers are very sensitive to just how strong is the rental market when you're ready with your apartment building. Just how expensive is it to convert this building? I've assumed 400 dollars per foot. Right, which means you bought a $35 million building. You're now plowing another $100 million to actually execute this conversion. It's very expensive. You might have to drill a core in the middle of the building to create windows on the interior. There's all these sort of quite extreme things you might have to do to turn this office building into an apartment building. But the numbers do work. But now policymakers say, you know what? We need affordable apartments. We don't just want apartments, we need affordable apartments. And so then the next question is, does it still work if we are also imposing an affordable housing mandate on the developer? And now the answer is no, it doesn't, unless there's additional inducements from the city, right? And that's where we get back to our prior conversation about what are some policy levers that could be pulled here? Well, one of them is, let's give property tax abatements for this type of conversion so that we could actually do these conversions with at least some component of affordable housing. We could sort of imagine having 20% of the apartment units be affordable at 80% of area median income or something like that, where we have at least some of these apartments be sort of accessible to a broader range of people. And so, yes, we can even create affordable housing, but not without some subsidy.
1: I completely agree. After listening to you and reading your paper, this is a huge shock. I believe that we can adapt to this, but it's going to take a lot of work and there's going to be some pain that we have to work through. Is there anything else that you want to share about your paper or your work on remote work and real estate?
0: Like we said, I think it's an important shock. It's going to likely morph in the sense that I feel like we've only begun to explore what opportunities this brings to the modern economy and how we organize work and where people live, the separation of location of residence from location of work. I also believe on the real estate side, there's we're only beginning to think about innovation, for example, contractual innovation. Think about if I'm a landlord and I live in this new world where tenants want my space two and a half days of the week and never on Friday. I could now imagine renting out that space on Friday to another company, maybe a small company that only wants to be together one day a week with its employees. And I give them a big rent discount because it's a Friday. And before we know it, we can build an app and we can really use this office much more efficiently. Of course, that's going to mean further reduction in aggregate demand for office. But at the right price, I might be bringing some tenants into the city that otherwise I might not get. So there's going to be a lot of innovation, I think, on the real estate side as well. And I think the end result of that will be a much more efficient utilization of our stock, maybe at the cost of just a much smaller office stock than what we have now. And as we discussed, it's going to take a long time to repurpose all of this real estate. Some of the real estate, by the way, cannot be converted very easily. It will have to be demolished, especially sort of these larger glass and steel office buildings from the 1980s and the 1990s. Those are really hard to convert. And that's going to be a painful process. And some people are really going to lose their shirt in the process, especially the equity owners, but even some of the debt owners. And then the question is, can we manage around the fallout from that financial stability? We already discussed municipal finances. We already discussed. I think this is a manageable shock for the financial system, but it's not going to be without any pain.
2: What are developers doing now that the people who were in the business of building tall office buildings in January, 2020, I'm sure many of those commitments continued into the pandemic and probably even to today, but presumably there are very few large office buildings in central cities that are currently in the planning stages, but there's a whole industry there. And so can they seamlessly pivot to conversions and residential, things like that, or what's going on there up and down the chain from the developers to the concrete companies to the financing? Do you have a sense of that?
0: Yeah, you make a good observation and I can give you a good anecdote. In New York City, again, around Penn Station, there was a massive development plan that the company Vornado was going to play a lead role in eight new large office towers, all of which has been put on hold. That doesn't mean it's never going to happen, but I think it's unlikely to happen in the next five years. And it takes a long time to plan and and execute an office building. And so I think you're right that there's going to be very little new office development for a long time. And that's good, by the way, because that will ultimately put a floor under the market, right? Office buildings are constantly depreciating. And so that's sort of a mechanism. No development for a long time is one of the adjustment mechanisms we have to put a floor under the office market. So what are those developers doing instead? A lot of it is the large ones are migrating both the types of buildings they build and the locations where they build them. So I'll give you another anecdote, somebody I know personally who is in the office market in New York is now building condos in Florida. That's sort of a one adjust. So different asset type, different location. So go where the people are, follow the money, and follow what they need. They need housing. We have a lot of shortage of residential. Industrial has been a bright spot in the real estate market as well. But by and large, again, partially because of much higher interest rates, this is going to be a slow period for real estate development. And real estate development has always been a very cyclical industry. You know, we go through these booms and busts and this will be you know, a substantial bust in my expectation.
1: All right. Thanks, Stein. I think that's a good note to wrap our conversation about. Next, we're going to turn to our recommendation segment. You ready for that? Sure. All right. So it's time for appendices. Okay. What's your recommendation for our listeners, Stein?
0: So my recommendation is a book that I was given as a gift, which is called The City in Transition, Prospects and Policies for New York. And it was written in June of 1977, uh, without revealing too much about my age that's fairly close to when I was born. What's fascinating about this book is that it is so prescient or so similar to the, the current predicament that we have just been talking about. right. New York City, for example, lost about 600,000 jobs between 1969 and 1977. This was sort of this previous era of transformation where the city had a lot of declining manufacturing and was looking for the next thing to replace all of that real estate with. And I think office towers sort of turned out to be the solution uh, this time around. And we had similar doom loop of lower real estate values, tax revenues, job loss, out migration. Real estate taxes fell dramatically from about 38% of the budget in 1966 to about 24% in 1975. Government debt tripled. And what were people 50 years ago, almost 45 years ago, thinking about some solutions could be? And basically, the answer was, you know, let's invest in our city. Let's get the private sector involved. Do public-private partnerships because the government cannot go it alone. We need an active private sector. Let's cut business taxes, which were quite high at the time. Let's lower the highest marginal income tax rate in New York, which was quite high at the time. Let's focus on infrastructure. Let's reduce wasteful government spending. Let's improve government management. I think a lot of those conclusions Apply today. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them do. I think we have a more nimble city, city administration. We have a lower tax rate already, but I think we do need to invest in the future of the city. And New York City has always been reinventing itself. Throughout its history, every large city is radically different than it used to be. And I think we need to go through this process again.
1: That's a great recommendation. It feels appropriate in the face of historic shock to look back in history. Greg, what's your appendix?
2: Well, as usual, I'm going to sneak in two. And the first one is a literal appendix. It is actually the internet appendix to this paper, where, among other things, Stein and his co-authors construct a work-from-home index that is long work-from-home winners, stocks that we would expect to do well in a high work-from-home scenario, and short work-from-home losers. And it showed, in fact, abnormally positive returns over the past few years. It's, It's pretty interesting. I would Encourage people to pull around with it, uh, you know, over the years to come. I, I don't know if, Stein, if you guys have future plans for that, if you're starting up a fund. Not immediately. <laughs> okay, not <laughs> immediately. So anyway, that's the first one. And then there's this really fun paper called "Assertive Mating at the Top of the Distribution, Evidence from the World's Most Exclusive Marriage Market by Mark Gogni in AJ applied. For fans of Downton Abbey, you will be familiar with the London season, which was a matching event where men would court women in London in the 19th century. And this was interrupted for a two or three year period by the mourning period for Queen Victoria's husband. And so Mark uses that as a shock to measure the impact on sorting and finds that the interruption increased peer commoner intermarriage by 40% and reduced sorting along landed wealth by 30%, which eventually reduced the political power of peers in late 19th century England. It's a pretty strong effect from one person's death. So I thought that was interesting. The urban hook, I think, is kind of implied by the incredible centralization of power and wealth in England, in London, and the fact that it was the London season, right? So people from all over the country, you know, Down Abbey, they go down from near York, where they live to London. So just a fun paper. Yeah, that might be the
1: past and future of cities as <laughs> marriage markets. I was inspired by Stein's recommendation to think about, again, one of my favorite papers, talking about how cities adapted to shocks in the past, shocks to their economic rationale. And so I thought of this paper by Joe Jerko. I'm looking back to look forward, learning from Philadelphia's 350 years of urban development. And so this is a paper about Philadelphia, not New York. And what's interesting about Philadelphia is it once very successfully responded to a negative shock. So in the late 18th century, Philadelphia was the preeminent center for trade and finance. Than the 13 colonies, but was overtaken by New York City. But in the wake of that, Philadelphia very successfully adapted by becoming one of the major manufacturing centers in America. And Joe talks about how one of some of the factors involved in that successful transition were the availability of skilled labor and human capital more generally, favorable transportation infrastructure. So you had the Pennsylvania Railroad connecting Philadelphia to most of the rest of the country. And then, you know, physical investments that the private sector made in Philadelphia to shift the transition to manufacturing. Then, you know, after manufacturing fades... In the 20th century, Philadelphia makes a less successful transition and is unable to kind of adapt to that shock. It's a great paper. Thinking about the remote work shock, I can't help but think about this historical examples of adaptation.
0: One quick response to this, Jeff, is that when we think about this remote work shock, actually Bob Schiller showed me this article from a newspaper in the 1890s about the invention of the radio. and. This
1: commentary
0: in the newspaper at the time saying, now that we can listen to the opera on the radio, why would anybody still go to the theater?
1: (laughs) That's great. That's great. Thanks for joining us, Stein. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I was happy
1: to do it. Greg, thanks for being here as always. Thank you. Our producer is Courtney Campbell. Check the show notes for links to the articles that we discussed today and let us know what you think of the show on Twitter. The show's handle is at Speaking. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover the show. Finally, the views expressed on the show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any other institutions with which the host or guests are affiliated.